Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. We're continuing on in the series, Diversity in Early Christianity. This series delves into what have traditionally been labeled heresies, namely the various forms of Christianity, the various styles of following Jesus that existed in the second and third centuries. And we also examine the struggles that are going on between different forms of Christianity in this time period. This episode continues to delve into the Nag Hammadi writings. The Nag Hammadi writings have traditionally been labeled Gnostic. We need to approach each of these writings in their own terms and ask the question of what is the worldview of this author? And also, when we can, what practices are reflected in this particular document? What type of Christianity are we seeing when we examine a particular writing? And today we look at the Apocryphon of John. You could translate that, the secret book of John. This is one among the writings that were discovered in the Nag Hammadi collection. And it's available in English translation in James M. Robinson's edited volume, The Nag Hammadi Library. This is readily available in various places, including libraries. You may also be able to find a translation of the Apocryphon of John online if you take a look on through Google. You can also read more about the Apocryphon of John in Bentley Layton's Gnostic Scriptures, which provides good introductions. In this episode, we delve into the worldview, the way of looking at things, the way of conceiving of the universe that we find in the Apocryphon of John. In this episode, we delve into the Apocryphon of John's notion of the spiritual realm. Like many other authors who are found in the Nag Hammadi collection, this author believes that the creator God of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament, the Jewish God, is an inferior deity to be distinguished from the true God, you could say, the God of the spiritual realm. And this author makes a very stark dualism between the perfect spiritual realm and the inferior material realm that is created by the God of the Old Testament. We'll explain more fully how this author conceives of God and conceives of the divine realm more fully. We also begin to delve into what this author considers to be the fall, namely an error that took place that led to the creation of the material realm. The following episode delves into that material realm and the creation of the material realm, the world around us, by the Demiurge, by the Creator God. For this author, the author of the Apocryphon of John, the Creator God, who he labels Yaltabaoth, who is one and the same for this author with the Judean God of the Hebrew Bible, is not a superior deity. Instead, is a mistake that resulted in the creation of a bad material realm. And so, this is quite a different worldview than you might be familiar with from some other forms of Christianity. And I'd warn you once again of the very advanced nature of the discussion that's going on here and the very complicated nature of writings like the Apocryphon of John. You would be better off listening to their earlier series in this podcast before turning to this. You would also be better off glancing through and hopefully reading through the Apocryphon of John before you listen to this podcast. Otherwise, you may find yourself quite lost. Even when you read the Apocryphon of John before beginning this podcast, you may also be lost. But nonetheless, at least you'll have a bearing on what is being spoken of here. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. 
the main reason I chose the Apocryphon of John to begin with is because it does give a somewhat systematic view of a particular author on this whole issue of the spiritual realm and the material realm that is central to many of the Nag Hammadi documents, the distinction between those two realms. And it also gives us an important insight into how the Bible, how the Hebrew Bible is used and how sources are interpreted within some of the Nag Hammadi documents. And so we're using the Apocryphon of John as a window into the worldview of a particular author that has some things in common with others and then mainly how this author conceives of salvation within this framework of a spiritual realm and a material realm. Let me begin with some introductory matters regarding the Apocryphon of John, its date, what type of writing it is, before we get into our focus on what worldview is represented there. As to date, because Irenaeus refers to a document that has many of the same mythological characteristics of the Apocryphon of John, because of that, most scholars would say to you that in some form, quite close to what we have in the Apocryphon of John existed before 180 CE. There's four main manuscripts, two in shorter form and two in longer form. The one you read that's collected together in Robinson's collection of the Nag Hammadi writings is the longer form. In terms of genre and structure, there are quite a few writings that were discovered at Nag Hammadi that scholars would speak of in terms of a discourse gospel. A discourse gospel you can think of as a genre that scholars have created to try and categorize some of the writings we find. And a discourse gospel is precisely what it sounds like. It's a discourse between one of the disciples and Jesus. Quite often these discourse gospels are presented as the resurrected Jesus coming and speaking to one of his favorite disciples and revealing secrets to that favorite disciple. And so in the case of the Apocryphon of John, there's many other examples of this in the Nag Hammadi documents, but in the Apocryphon of John, it all opens with that whole setting of John, one of the disciples of Jesus, talking with a Pharisee, having an argument with a Pharisee, John having a dilemma of questions that we're going to get into, and then Jesus appearing to him in a particular way and having a dialogue with him in which his questions are answered, in which the secrets of the spiritual realm are revealed to the disciple. So this is a genre of literature, it seems, discourse, gospel, that develops in the second century. Basically, in terms of structure, you have that opening section in the Apocrypha of John, where it's John debating with a Pharisee, Jesus appearing, and then what you could call, even though it's a dialogue gospel, the very first section is mainly a monologue. The light appears, who is also Christ, and the light just goes on and on talking for a very long time. It's not much of a dialogue, even though it's a dialogue. The light doesn't give John much of a chance to say anything. The whole first section is a long monologue, really, of the light, Christ, explaining the spiritual realm and explaining the, the fullness and explaining Sophia and explaining the, the way in which something was torn away from the perfect spiritual realm, creating an imperfection outside of that spiritual realm. In page 13 of the manuscript, about halfway through there, you have a return to more of the dialogue style where the original characters, John, the disciples, back on the scene asking questions. And then more dialogue and more extensive material again about the creation of human beings in that dialogue. Then you have the original setting of the dialogue at the end again, where it doesn't just finish off with a, 
with the mythological description, it finishes off with returning to the character John, discussing with the character Christ. In terms of sources that are used, the Bible is a key source for the Apocryphon of John and for many of the Nag Hammadi documents we're going to look at. The author is very saturated in all kinds of Platonic, Middle Platonic sources. And this is what influences the way they uh, relate what they're talking about here. Another thing to say in an introductory way about the Apocryphon of John, that Seth, the figure of Seth from the Hebrew Bible, from Genesis, who's a son of Adam, seems to play a fundamental role in the mythology of a number of Nag Hammadi documents. And so when you have the category of Gnosticism, you say, well, there's Sethian Gnosticism and there's Valentinian Gnosticism, etc. Well, we've got to problematize that. We have already sort of shown how the, the oversimplification of things as Gnosticism being one thing are problematic. However, it is still true that there are a number of authors with slightly different worldviews who have some things in common with one another. And one of the things they have in common with one another, several authors in the Nag Hammadi, is a focus on the figure of Seth. And so the Apocryphon of John is another example of mythology with a focus on Seth. And Seth is instrumental here. He's not just a character. He is the model of salvation, as we're going to soon see. So you can loosely talk about Sethian traditions that are echoed in a variety of different Nag Hammadi documents. Let me say a few words about biblical interpretation. Traditionally, scholars who thought of a category of Gnosticism and oversimplified things that way talked about protest exegesis, as I mentioned earlier. We need to be careful about uh, that category. What we can do, though, is we can study individual authors and see what is this author's technique in interpreting the Hebrew Bible. What techniques are used? What stories are important for this author within the Hebrew Bible? How does he unpack the stories when he comes across them? How do they function within the author's overall worldview? What importance is the interpretation of the Hebrew Bible for understanding the document as a whole? These sorts of questions we need to ask with each of the documents we look at. A thing that really heavily influences interpretation of the Hebrew Bible is that the God of the Hebrew Bible is the creator God who is inferior or even evil sometimes. So that aspect of the worldview heavily influences interpretation. For the Apocryphon of John, at least, many of the traditions we know of outside of these Nag Hammadi documents that deal with Satan, many of the ideas that start to build up around a personified evil figure, sometimes called Satan, get attached to the Creator God. So another way of putting it, to oversimplify it, but it'll help you remember, is you get a very Satanic Creator God in the Apocryphon of John. Let's look at the Apocryphon of John in terms of the story it tells now. And I'll work through it with you and help you understand how to make sense of it when you're rereading it when you get home tonight or in, in the coming weeks. Bentley Leighton's view of the Apocryphon of John in terms of a four-act plot is helpful for you to remember. And I'm going to work our way through the Apocryphon of John today, unpacking it for you using this fourfold plot line. Bentley Layton, first of all, talks about Act 1. Act 1 is the expansion of the first principle, the good and perfect principle that we've learned about in previous discussions, into the spiritual realm. So the development of that unified pleroma, fullness, perfect spiritual realm that is an emanation out from that good and perfect principle, that platonic idea that we've been talking about. So that's Act 1. Part of Act 1, though, 
is that that perfection somehow develops something that leads to an imperfection. So that's act one. Act two is a consequence of that last little snippet of that first act, namely the imperfection that somehow emerges. The creation of the universe is act two, the creation of the material realm, where that imperfection leads to a creator God who creates the universe we know. The Judean God of the Hebrew Bible for the, this author is that creator God and is the consequence of the imperfection. Act three is somewhat separate in the sense that it's very important to another aspect of the development of the story, namely not only the creation of the material realm, but act, act three is the creation of human beings specifically. As part of this act three, the creation of human beings, there's a deception of the creator God involved so that the imperfection that originated earlier can be eliminated and perfection restored. And so there's a strategy that some of the emanations in the spiritual realm have in order to bring back to perfection that imperfection that emerged, namely the imperfection that led to the creator God creating the material realm that there's a way of bringing back the element to the spiritual realm. And so this act three is about finding a way of having humans play a role in bringing back to perfection and returning the power and light to the perfect and spiritual realm. And it's in the form of the souls of human beings. The elements of perfection are within the souls of human beings. This brings us to act four namely the subsequent history of humanity and the gradual recovery, the elements which have left it. In other words, souls that possess within them elements of the perfect light of the spiritual realm, gradually returning to become one with where they belong, with the final story being everything returning to the one. And the imperfect mistake that took place, including the, the creator God in the material realm, disappearing ultimately in the end. So let's work our way through these four stages. So let's deal with this first main aspect of the story in the mythology of the Apocryphon of John, namely the development of the perfect spiritual realm. And Christ is presented as the character here who is telling us about this first main act. And it's on page 105 that you have John asking these questions and then Christ appearing. We have these questions asked by John on page 105 that lead to into the whole dialogue, that lead into everything we learned from this document. When I, John, heard these things in my debate with the Pharisee, I turned away from the temple to a desert place. He's having a bit of a crisis because the Pharisee's starting to sound right about where did your leader go? And, and John's not sure. Where did my, where did Christ go? And he's having a bit of a crisis of faith, so to speak. And I grieved greatly in my heart, saying, How then was the Savior appointed, and why was he sent into the world by his Father? And who is his Father who sent him? And of what sort is that ion or age or eternal period of time or realm to which we shall go? Ion has multiple meanings in Greek and in Coptic, right? Ion is eternity. Ion can be eternal realm, eternal being eternal time, etc. For what did he mean when he said to us, this ion to which you will go is of the type of the imperishable ion, 
but he did not teach us concerning the latter of what sort it is. So here's this crisis. Where did the Savior come from? Who is the Father that sent him? What kind of place is that Father in? And therefore, where is Christ? You can start to see that the rest of what we're going to read is an answer to that, an elaborate, a very elaborate answer to where Christ came from, namely the spiritual realm that's going to be explained in detail, which is our Act 1. Act 1 is the expansion of the spiritual realm. Straight away, while I was contemplating these things, behold, the heavens opened, and the whole creation which is below heaven shone, and the world was shaken. I was afraid, and behold, I saw in the light a youth who stood by me, while I looked at him, he became like an old man, and he changed his likeness again, becoming like a servant. There was not a plurality before me, but there was a likeness with multiple forms in the light, and the likenesses appeared through each other, and the likeness had three forms. So here's Christ appearing as a light, who's going to then share the knowledge that you need for salvation, that, that John needs for salvation. The knowledge of where the Savior came from, the knowledge of who the Father is, the knowledge of that spiritual realm, and the knowledge of the need for salvation because of the creation of the material realm. This is all going to be flowing out from these initial questions. So let's look and work our way through this. Page 2 and 3 of the manuscript at this point, where we have the beginning of three different figures that are explained to us. These three figures are the basis of the perfect spiritual realm, a united perfect spiritual realm. There's a triad here in the spiritual realm that is central to the whole spiritual realm for this author's worldview. The triad is the monad, the barbello, and the child. Or another way of putting it, the father, the mother, and the child. So he systematically works his way in the Apocryphon of John through each of these figures. So the monad, for example, is explained in this way, page 3, lines 5 and following. For he is total perfection. He did not lack anything that he might be completed by it. Rather, he is always completely perfect in light. He is illimitable, since there is no one prior to him. He is unsearchable, since there exists no one prior to him to examine him. He is immeasurable, since there was no one prior to him to measure him, etc. So we have here the image of the one perfect being. The thoughts in his mind emanate and start to extend that perfect oneness. So the second mother figure you have on pages four and five. Here's a good place to learn what I mean by emanations and how they imagine the extension of this one perfect fullness, the spiritual realm we're seeing explained to us here. And so the parents thought, the father's thought, performed a deed, and she came forth. Namely, she who had appeared before him in the shine of his light. This is the first power which was before all of them, and which came forth from his mind. She is the forethought of the all. So the forethought is one of the emanations of light, or, to put another way, one of the thoughts in the mind of the father. The glory of Barbello, the perfect glory in the ions, the glory of the revelation. She glorified the virginal spirit, and it was she who praised him, because thanks to him she had come forth. This is the first thought, his image. This forethought in the mind of the Father, who is also called Barbello, who is an emanation of light, is also the image. 
This is important later when you're trying to understand the worldview of this author in terms of how he imagines humans. And look at what it's described as. She became the womb of everything. For it is she who is prior to them all, the mother father, the first man, so she's the first man as well, the Holy Spirit, the thrice male, the thrice powerful, the thrice named androgynous one, and the co-eternal ion among the invisible ones, and the first to come forth. She's all those things. So an author like the author of the Apocryphon of John has a varied vocabulary and a varied way of describing the ideas that he has. So that you can't expect an author like the this Apocryphon of John or some of the other authors in Nagamati to stick with a clear-cut idea of what they're talking about. You've got to see the fluid motion of how they discuss the emanations from the Father. You've got to see how the various fluid ways of discussing the things fit together and may be one and the same. You've got to get your mind around these ways of thinking in order to make sense of the documents. So we have so far the fa father, the mother, now let's go on to the third. Look at how this one takes place. We're on page six of the manuscript, lines ten and following. And he, the spirit, the monad, looked at Barbello with the pure light which surrounds the invisible spirit, and with his spark, and she conceived from him. So here there's an idea of sexual imagery of conception, and there's an only begotten child that comes out of this, and this is the third of the triad in the Apocryphon of John's worldview. This only begotten child is one and the same with what? What are the other designations of the child? The child is anointed with goodness, alluding to the fact that it's Christ. And then it's identified in just at the beginning of page 7 of the manuscript as Christ quite explicitly there. From the threefold triad, more and more emanations take place, don't they? Until you have an expansion of this oneness that is the Father. Even though it's a multiplicity in the way we're reading it, it's still a oneness. And it's an expansion of that oneness, the fullness. But there's some things that you really need to notice now in this early expansion from the triad. The triad are there, the father, the mother, the child, and now emanations from it. Take a look on page 8, lines 30 and following, towards the bottom of 109 in Robinson. And from the foreknowledge of the perfect mind, through the revelation of the will of the invisible spirit and the will of the self-born, autogenes, the perfect man appeared. This is very important for you understanding salvation in the worldview of this author. The first revelation and the truth. It is he whom the virginal spirit called Adamas. And he placed him over the first ion with the mighty one. So this author has an Adam that is one of the emanations that is an ion in the perfect fullness of the spiritual realm. It's going to turn out later on, isn't it, that the Adam that is created by the inferior creator God is in the image of that perfect ion, Adam. It's telling you where the spiritual element in the created human beings, created by the inferior being, nonetheless belong with the atom of light, the luminous atom. So we're right at the beginning of everything emanating, and already there's an atom, the perfect human being it's sometimes expressed. And it talks there about power that this atomos has. The invisible one gave him a spiritual, invincible power. And then it talks about Seth also being one of the emanations in the spiritual realm. So Seth and Adam are emanations in the spiritual realm. And there's going to be replications of that in the material realm that lead to the return to the spiritual realm. 
Now, how then does this material realm get made? So far, we've only got perfect spiritual realm, perfect oneness that is the Father, emanations that expand that oneness. Then you have an emanation that's Sophia. And here's where we have the mistake. And it's not always Sophia in the other documents. Some of the other documents we'll see have a shared tradition with this one and have the source of the imperfection that led to creation being Sophia. So we'll see that sometimes, but not always. There'll be other ways of explaining the error that led to creation of the material realm. Sophia, you may know, is the Greek word for wisdom. And in the Hebrew Bible and in with Juda within Judaism, long before the second century, you already have Lady Wisdom personified within Judaism. The wisdom in God's mind as a personified woman is already an idea within Proverbs and other parts of the Hebrew Bible. So another Judean concept informs the way an author like this talks about things. Take a look at page 9 of the manuscript, lines 25 and following. And the Sophia of the Epinoia, of the thought, being an ion, conceived a thought from herself and the conception of the invisible spirit and foreknowledge. Look at that phrase, from herself. She wanted to bring forth a likeness out of herself, look at this phrase, without the consent of the spirit. If you look at the emanations elsewhere in the Apocryphon of John, it's always with the consent of the Father, invisible spirit, that everything takes place with the consent. So Barbello doesn't just do whatever she wants. She always doing things in consent with the Father. Sophia is an emanation from the emanations, from the triad, who decides for herself to have a likeness without the consent of the Father. She wanted to bring forth a likeness out of herself without consent of the Spirit. He had not approved, and without her consort, and without her cons his consideration. And though the person of her maleness had not approved, and she had not found her agreement, and she had thought without the consent of the Spirit and the knowledge of her agreement, yet she brought forth. And because of the invincible power which is in her, power, this is going to be important because this is how the power ends up in humans. Her thought did not remain idle, and something came out of her, which was imperfect and different from her appearance. And it was dissimilar to the likeness of its mother, for it has another form. This is the birth of the creator God we're seeing here, right? And when she saw the consequences of her desire, her thought, it changed into a form of a lion-faced serpent. And its eyes were like lightning with fires which flash. She cast it away from her outside that place that no one of the immortal ones might see it, for she had created it in ignorance. She made a huge blunder here, emanating something without the Father, and the result is something imperfect. And what does she do? She hides it away. She quickly puts it somewhere else where it won't be seen. And she surrounded it with a luminous cloud, and she placed a throne in the middle of the cloud that no one might see it except the Holy Spirit, who is called the Mother of the Living. And she called his name Yaltebo. This is the God of the Hebrew Bible in, in the way the Apocryphon of John is talking here. And so many of the stories of the Hebrew Bible of Genesis are now going to be interpreted as Yaltebeoth's activity. But it's Yaltebeoth is an inferior, imperfect God. Yaltebeoth then starts to create the material realm. The fall has taken place. So the fall, so to speak, for the author of the Apocryphon of John has nothing to do with Adam and Eve, does it? To use an analogy here. The fall is a fall of one of the emanations. An error of one of the emanations is a source of evil. The ultimate fall is the mistake of Sophia in the Apocryphon of John.
That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Kaveh, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>